Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the second season of Think India podcast. This is a show for aspiring entrepreneurs, startup founders, and business enthusiasts to discover the latest innovations in education technology and to specifically learn about the growth of edtech in India and around the world and why it might be the next successful market. My name is Neville Tarapurwala, and I'm president of Brand Capital International, the strategic investment arm of the Times Group, India's largest media conglomerate. Today's guest is Michael Moore. Michael is an investor, entrepreneur, author, and a dear friend of mine. He has kindly agreed to be on this podcast. He has invested privately in game-changing businesses such as Facebook, Twitter, Coursera, Snap, Lyft, Chegg, and Spotify, all the names that we constantly hear day in and day out. He's co-founded numerous successful enterprises, including Think Equity, GSV Labs, and the ever-successful ASU GSV Summit, which convenes over 5,000 leaders from around the world focusing on accelerating innovation in education technology. Welcome to the podcast, Michael, and thank you for joining oh, us Oh, Neville, it's my pleasure. This is, uh, it's, great to, it's great to be with you and uh, really excited about our conversation. Thank you. So, Michael, to begin with, can you please share a little bit more about your background and how you have become so passionate about EdTech, apart from being a rock star in the Silicon Valley? That's uh, too kind of you. But the first part of my career, I was a research analyst, and I got the privilege of meeting with many fast-growing, dynamic businesses. And I kept on asking, what's the biggest challenge for you to, to continue to grow as fast as you are? And, and I kept on hearing this message, how we attract and develop knowledge workers, people that had the education, the skills required to be successful. And so it started getting me thinking that this really was a big problem. The bigger the problem, the greater the opportunity is the way that I look at it. So that really started the path of understanding what the opportunities were with education technology and how that could help solve that problem. I also happened then visit some of the schools that existed in some of the poorer urban markets in the United States. And I was absolutely shocked and appalled by what I saw going on in these schools, just how awful they were. You know, not only the education that was being provided, but the facilities and everything else. And you sort of say, well, now you can really easily understand why there's such a huge problem in terms of how to better, more effectively educate our people. Thank you. So you would have just read that the edtech sector has reached $10 billion in investments this year. What do you think have been the key drivers of these investments which are happening around the world? Well, we're in a knowledge economy where what you know, your knowledge, makes the difference not only for an individual, but for a company and, that, for that matter, a country. People understand that. And the Internet effectively democratizes that opportunity. With the coronavirus, basically, all these trends that we saw before have accelerated to, you know, to the present. So really. You know, digital learning has become an incredible place and an incredible need for society. As I said before, you know, the classic investment opportunities where there's a problem, the bigger the problem, the greater the opportunity. I mean, in this knowledge economy, there's not a bigger problem, or in my view, opportunity than to find companies that can effectively solve that issue. What you're now seeing with the 4.8 billion people on the Internet in the three and a half billion smartphones, you're seeing these rapidly growing, scaling digital learning models with network effects. I call these weapons of mass instruction. 
And these weapons of mass destruction are growing very quickly and creating enterprise value very quickly. And so that attracts you know, a significant amount of capital. As you said, you know, already $10 billion year to date. That's 20 times what we saw 10 years ago. Thank you. So, Michael, you've been a great traveler. Okay, you've been to China, you've been to the Middle East, you've been to South America, you've been, of course, to Europe. And in my last five to six years that I, you know, we've engaged, I've seen you traveling all over the world with a mission. And I wanted you to tell our listeners, what is that mission that you're currently trying to achieve? And what is the purpose of your current, you know, visits to so many places and you meet so many companies, founders. So could you, you know, elaborate on that? Sure. First of all, we both live and work in Silicon Valley and Silicon Valley is an amazing place with tremendous innovation and great entrepreneurship. But you have this emerging global Silicon Valley that's happening around the world. And so increasingly, the important ideas of tomorrow are no longer just created out of Silicon Valley, they're created everywhere. And so what I'm looking to do is connect Silicon Valley to this emerging global Silicon Valley because I think that's both you know, where the world's going and I think it's important. Personally, what motivates me is sort of a, not necessarily my business mission, but just my overriding mission is I feel like um, you know, a driving force for society is to give everybody an equal opportunity to participate in the future. And the foundation of that is to create access to quality education and education technology is, I think, this great enabler. And so that's just a personal passion of mine. I just feel like that is critical in terms of fairness. Your future shouldn't be determined by how well you select your parents. You know, it just you sh- everybody should be a universal right to have that. From a business opportunity standpoint, I do think there's a tremendous opportunity. If we can solve that mission, if we can accomplish that mission, it's absolutely going to be um, stunning in terms of the opportunities that are being created. And again, overall at GSV and for me, we want to invest in the most dynamic, fastest growing, most influential, most respected education technology companies in the world. And you're seeing many of these ideas being created outside the United States. And obviously in India, is just absolutely on fire as it relates to innovation, entrepreneurship, and digital learning. And that's also the, the point is you can't do that, you know, as much as we're in an environment today, which makes it tough to travel. You really can't get a, a sense for the market unless you actually go there and visit. It, it can't happen just once. I've been to China 20 times in the last three years. And the thing I know about China is the more I go, the less I know. Well, India is equally complex. And so I think all that requires get on a plane and get out and see things. But it really is driven by both this personal mission and passion along with what the business opportunity is. Great. Thank you. So, uh, Michael, you know, the most important thing which uh, happens right now is there's this huge hype about education, education, ed tech companies, et cetera, et cetera. So what are the trends that you are seeing along the way? Yeah, the big mega trends are, one, just the knowledge economy, which is $7 trillion globally, and that's a tailwind that's been going for 25 years. Secondly, the Internet's another huge mega trend where digital learning was $160 billion in 2019, uh, that $7 trillion overall market, and we expected that to be a trillion dollars by 2034. What the coronavirus has done is accelerated that uh, to about half that time. So we believe it will be a trillion-dollar market 
by 2027. Some of the other trends that we're looking at that, that complement that, one is this fact that you know, lifelong learning, no longer are you going to fill up your knowledge tank to age 25 and drive off through life. You're going to continually need to be learning things just to stay current and fresh in the, in the work that you're in. You know, college education is no longer a nice-to-have. It's a must-have. In fact, college learning is going to go from 207 million students globally right now to doubling that to 414 million by 2030, and all that's going to happen digitally. Other trends that we like include one called Hollywood meets Harvard. All our investment opportunities, we look at where friction is being removed in the process. And you think about what Hollywood does a great job with. It creates, you know, they're able to tell stories. They have great actors, you know, that are stars. They have high quality production at a low cost, so big scale. And maybe we should call this Bollywood meets IIT or something like that. But the point is, it's how you create this rich, engaging content where you're learning but you're, you're doing it, and it's a fun, enjoyable way. The complementary theme I call invisible learning. So you look at gaming, for example. We've got 2 billion people playing games around the world. If you could learn without even recognizing that that's what you're doing, you're doing it because you're doing something you want to do, not something that you need to do. Another trend that we like is called uh, RoboEd, and that's looking at artificial intelligence and how that's going to be incorporated into digital learning so you get a more personalized learning experience. Every single click is becoming more and more my own way, my own personal robot that's helping me learn faster or fill in where I have gaps. And maybe a, a two other quick themes I'll talk about. One is called knowledge as a currency. So it used to be that degree was the credential that you needed to get a future opportunity to get a job. It's not that the degree is going away, but that's being complemented by other ways that people represent their skills, their knowledge, their abilities, and so forth. And, and India actually is a place that we're seeing where that degree, while well, important, is you know what really matters is you know what your abilities are and how some education that you're taking, which might not be a credential degree or a credit degree, actually has real currency in the market. And the last trend I'll talk about just now is called higher ed, higher ed, H-I-R-E ed, where you're really integrating the corporate world with the university world and where you're really learning to earn. So those trends, I think, are all part of this opportunity, which really has a robust uh, environment for entrepreneurship and investment opportunities. Okay. I'm going to stay a little bit on India, and I want to get your viewpoints. So let me tell you, in India, most families would probably pay for the education of their children than spend on healthcare. It's so important and valuable, obviously. And therefore, that drives certain expectations of the parents to acquire, you know, I want my son or daughter to be a doctor or an engineer and get a job, become a doctor by or into some big hospital or whatever. So the expectations are pretty, pretty high from the parents' side because they spend their entire savings into their children's education. Uh, either they're going abroad or they're going into IITs or MBAs or whatever that may be. Now, with the internet coming in, edtech having a play, how do you think people with this mindset are going to be able to absorb the Coursera's, the Baiju's, etc.? So we all know that uh, you know Baiju is a big play in India, and Coursera is there, etc. And there is, you know, people are availing of their programs, etc. But one is for companies like these to really 
take education to the next sector and there are some you know ne- next level or next stage and there are some other you know edtech companies which are doing you know different things but what is required according to you to convince the parents that these are not complementary but important plays going ahead that availing a program or a course through these digital edtech companies is of value what do you think that these companies should do or any company looking at india any edtech company looking at india what is it that they should do primarily to target the parents to say whatever they are providing is of value what do you think they should do well i think you um hit the nail on the head in terms of the ambition or the level of priority that education is in the indian market i mean you can just feel the the sense of ambition and sort of the recognition that parents in india understand clearly is that the greatest investment they can make for their family's future and their children's future which they all care desperately about is to invest in education and so what the entrepreneur the education entrepreneur needs to show is that their product or service is going to tangibly give their kids that uh, advantage that ability to kind of move forward and to be able to achieve their dreams for their kids that they're going to be in a place that's better than themselves and that they're going to participate what we used to call here in America the American dream but it really is the the Indian dream it's the China dream but that's an education is the golden ticket to that so the entrepreneur it really is that we call it ROE return on education and you know i mean look at everybody is conscious of cost and so if you can do something in a cost effective way you know so much the better but the most important piece is that by investing time and money into a product or service that there's going to be a tangible benefit a tangible path for success and that your child is going to be elevated and given more opportunity given more likelihood predictability that they're going to be able to progress along the way and be able to achieve that indian dream thank you so michael let me just move a little bit ahead and and i'm going to ask you to compare if possible like you said you've been 20 times to china you know what the market is out there you have been limited number of times probably to india or one of them with the group where we actually got you to speak to some of our economic times startup founders and you've been to brazil when you look at these three markets okay which one do you believe and of course we know in terms of per capita income china is big and india is not that big in terms of per capita income the affordability factor etc cetera, etc cetera. but what is it that common thread which really ties these three key markets as i see it what's your take on these three markets well i think in all three markets education's at the very top of the list in terms of what families are prioritizing and so your your point that that in india parents households prioritize education over healthcare you know that's that speaks you know volumes and i think we see that in spades and i think frankly that same attitude is in china as well and you look at how money's spent on a discretionary basis you know india and china spend significantly more than parents in the us do on discretionary income for education Brazil's a little bit I think uh, you know again it's a huge priority I think some of Brazil also though you know while it's an emerging economy and it has you know it's it has um, a number of different things going on in terms of innovation and entrepreneurship that support that opportunity in that market 
I think some of what has happened in Brazil is this: there's been some successful enterprises in education, and that success has breed success. And so, it's in other words, it's almost like you know why is I grew up in Minneapolis, so there's a bunch of successful medical technology companies. Why? Because there there was a Medtronic, and that spawned 25 other medical technology companies, which spawned a thousand medical technology companies. I think Brazil is a little bit more that as opposed to the attitude and prioritization. In India, it's very, very clear. There's a culture that has embraced education as the key to the future. That realization is backed up by how they spend their time and their money and, and, and how things are valued. I think China is, is similar to that in terms of just it's just a cultural, it's just a gigantic priority for that culture. Thank you. Bill Gates once said, Michael, that the jewel in the crown for the United States is really their universities. Considering the pandemic and the growth of edtech companies uh, who are looking at leveraging the current situation, what's your view on you know, U.S. universities, the higher education universities, or even for undergrads being affected by the current scenario, which is... And I'd rather focus on the pandemic part of it rather than the immigration part of it. So how do you think that's going to affect the U.S. uh, universities? Because uh, the fact remains that uh, even today, students in India will pay $60,000 a year to, or parents will pay $60,000 a year to send their child to a university education in the United States and will have a preference for United States over the United Kingdom. So what's your take on that? I think it's a risk to believe that the past will be the present. I mean, obviously, historically, the U.S. higher education system has been the best in the world. And as Bill Gates said, it was a key asset for America. And I think the higher education system in the United States, while there's, it's, it's still you know, very good, there's definitely chinks in the armor. And some of that is the cost. I mean, for the last 40 years, you've had the cost of higher education in the United States growing at three and a half times inflation. There's now $1.6 trillion of student debt. And increasingly, the return on investment, which historically was high, even paying high number, you know, you, you got that back in terms of what you made in terms of increased income. That's not necessarily the dynamics that we're looking at today. And when you couple that, with other options that you're able to use to acquire knowledge that has currency in the marketplace, that's a fraction of that cost, and things like blockchain and AI that's going to be utilized to really be a better representation of what your true capabilities, your true skills, what you're going to contribute to a team besides just this kind of artifact of a degree. I'm not saying that goes away, but I am saying that I think the world going forward is changed and it needs to be reimagined in terms of what the equation is for investing in your future and success. It's still going to be education, I believe, is the foundation of it, but how you acquire that education and what the options are going to be and what the costs associated with that is going to be, I think, is changing before our eyes. And I think that's an important realization as, as, as we think about where we're at and where we're going. Michael, maybe this, what I'm going to ask you this question, you may have thought of it sometime. So I draw a little bit of a parallel between the media industry globally, which, you know, when internet came its way, 
just couldn't grapple with that change. And we saw traditional media going down south. And when I compare it to the universities in the United States, do you believe that there's a case, a similar case, where today a New York Times has made so many acquisitions, changed their entire understanding of how media needs to run, and they've done it pretty successfully. They've got people who pay, they've got subscriptions, they've got great advertising, which gets them revenue, and their print is obviously flat or you know, down. I mean, there is a similar parallel with education with, you know, high-ed universities, which do you believe any of these universities would aggressively invest in digital or even go to the extent of acquiring any of these edtech companies to sort of slot themselves in a particular way so that they can ensure they don't lose market share? So the higher, so the short answer is I do. The longer answer is that historically the higher education system has been pretty immune to innovation and to other forces that could cause change. And you, you saw the digital destruction that happened in the media business happen pretty quickly. And, and specifically, if you look at you know, newspapers that, uh, uh, you know, local newspapers and regional newspapers, I mean, went through tremendous dislocation over the past 25 years, the music industry. Another area where you've seen tremendous changes take place in terms of what, you know, you know, what the model is. And education really hasn't had to face that up until now. You have 4,500 universities in the United States alone. You have 100 that have a billion dollar or more endowment. Again, they've been raising tuition by three and a half times inflation for 40 years. Now you have these very compelling, very low cost, high quality alternatives. And so your regional monopoly is kind of gone away. You can have the very best professor in the world at your desktop at a fraction of the cost, maybe no cost, versus $65,000 a year and totally disrupt my life. So the pandemic has accelerated an issue that existed before. And I think now as we go, I call from BC before Corona to AD after disease, I think you're going to see some real changes and partnerships. I think you're going to see corporations increasingly get involved with the universities. I think you're going to see universities go away. I think you're going to see universities partner with other universities and, and with ed tech companies. So I think this market that really had moved at a very slow glacial you know, pace for a long time is going to go through very rapid change over the next decade. BC, before corona, AD after disease. I think it's that. I think it's that dramatic in terms of the change that's taking place. Okay, sticking to this subject, do you believe that in the near term or in the slightly longer term, you see a Stanford or a Harvard or one of these top five Ivy colleges actually acquiring a edtech company? Well, so I think there's a handful of universities whose model is so different from everybody else's that you know, they're under enormous pressure not to change. I mean, so you think about a lot of what makes Harvard, Harvard is the scarcity of it. And so they, you know, in Stanford, they get valued higher by rejecting more and more students, right? So the, so, which is sort of a funny concept because you think if you are trying to, your, your mission is to educate people, you want to educate as many people as qualify either through their scores or aptitude or, or through, you know, uh, other ways. That's not their model, and I don't. I think they'll be the last to change. And they all have huge endowments. You look at you know, Harvard has a forty billion dollar endowment. Stanford has something like a twenty five billion dollar endowment. So 
so they can weather changes in models better, and they have a lot of incentive not to devalue or to you know effectively create more currency than what they you know have created for you know many years. Right. I want to jump back to India, and I want to jump back to I want to talk about devices now. As you know, in India, we have challenge on the last mile. We have a challenge on desktops. We have less laptops. Let's, of course, it's improved than what it was in the past. But most people have the mobile. We are the fastest growing mobile economy, as you would have probably heard. How do you see these edtech companies creating programs that render appropriately on their phones and not necessarily on the desktop? Because if you go down to some of the smaller towns, most people have challenges on internet and they depend on mobile devices. So do you believe that some of these global companies are ready to enter India and create content which will render appropriately on the mobile devices? Well, if they don't, they're going to not be successful or successful at all because, as you said, I mean, that's the, that's the reality of India. And I also think, frankly, the reality of young people around the world is it's a mobile-first society. And the Generation Z and Millennials, I mean, the, the, the phone is basically, you know, kind of part of their life. And so, you know, going even to a desktop is a little bit awkward for them. So if you don't, I mean, said a different way, if you want to be really successful in India, and I think, frankly, everywhere, you have to have a very compelling mobile offering. And that's where I'd start, because I think that's a way bigger market and a far more compelling opportunity. Right, right. Absolutely. So before we end this conversation and the podcast, Michael, I had, you know, you're just coming off a very successful ASU-GSV summit, which is the first virtual summit that ASU-GSV has done. Maybe you can just give a little bit of a, you know, a top-down view of the summit, how many people attended online, what were the success metrics. And when you went through all these sessions, if you were to think of the three tech companies out of the ASU-GSV or otherwise, we should look at in the next 12 to 24 months, we should look at which are the three companies you believe in the tech space we should look at, barring Baiju's, because we all know about in India Baiju's. But outside that, which are the three companies that you might have seen globally or even during the course of the five to seven day uh, summit that you had? Could you give us any suggestions on these three companies? Well, first of all, thank you so much for your kind words about the ASUGC Summit, but for you know, Times of India and Brand Capital's ongoing support and support on our India focus and track, which was fantastic. And thank you for that. We had 33,000 people from around the world participate in the summit, 65 different countries, uh, something like 500 uh, companies were all part of the ASU GSV Summit. So it was... Um, amazing participation. I think what that really talked about is just the hunger from around the world to how to advance themselves, participate in this digital education revolution that's taking place. We call it the dawn of the age of digital learning that we're seeing. You know, there were phenomenal sessions, and I would encourage anybody to go to the ASU GSV Summit website and go to the videos. A lot of these sessions, they're all available online for free. Um, and so please do. I'm a little biased. My favorite session was where I got to interview Malcolm Gladwell. And I think why I just am such a fan of his. I think he's just got such brilliant 
insights. I think that I would encourage people to listen to that. I listened to all the stuff that we did with the India landscape and issues. I think even if you're you know very familiar, I think it's just fascinating the amount of interest that there is in India right now. India is just top of mind for many many people from around the world. You know, other things I thought were you know incredibly interesting, important. I had Scott McNeely, the the founder of Sun Microsystems, talking about open content and, and how that looks um, going forward. We had Eric Wan from Zoom. I think Zoom as a platform for learning is going to be a mega theme and how uh, entrepreneurs build different education programs you know, as an app on the Zoom platform. I think that was a really, really interesting, important thing. A guy named Scott Galloway, a NYU professor, um, has, I think, an extremely provocative vision of the future of education. And so, again, I would, would definitely look at his on-demand piece. In terms of companies, a lot of interesting companies. I mean, many, many, I'm going to miss some important ones. Photomath is a company that has an app for math, algebra, calculus, where you basically hover your phone over a math problem and instantaneously comes back with a solution. Also, along with that is um, an AI tutor, RoboEd, that can help the student at a very low cost. That company is absolutely exploding in terms of its business. You know, some really interesting companies out of India. I'm going to miss some. Upgrad, of course, Quiz with a double Z is super interesting. Great Learning is another company that, um, you know, is, is, is fantastic that, again, I'd encourage people to look at. Again, I'm going to miss, I'm going to miss some, some really good ones. Um, you know, I think Coursera just as a concept is, is a company that the Times of India obviously has been involved in with for some time as, as we at GSV, but I think that's a very important kind of global platform education company with 70 million learners on it. Uh, Course Hero is another one that I think people should pay attention to. So those are some ideas. But again, you know, the great news is the number of talented entrepreneurs that are coming to the sector is really impressive and I think a great indicator of how important the sector is going to be. You mentioned the $10 billion that's been invested to date. That's another important sign. The fact that we've got 32 unicorns here with Baiju being the first. I mean, all that I think is is really good signs about what the future of the ed tech sector looks like. And I think the India market is, you know, as exciting as there is. So, you know, all that uh, adds up to some really fun and exciting times ahead for all of us. Fabulous. Fabulous, Michael. Michael, before I let you go, and I cannot let you go without asking this question, you've been working with so many entrepreneurs, okay? You know, a lot of them aspiring, want to do a lot of things. You also conducted the GSP bootcamp, which was a very successful bootcamp that you had over close to, uh, I think, 10,000 people, if I'm not mistaken. What's the advice that you would give an aspiring entrepreneur if he or she were to start an ed tech company in today's environment? Well, that's the first advice I'd give would be get a dog. And I say get a dog because <laughs> as an entrepreneur, um, you're going to have days where nobody likes you, including yourself, and yet your dog will always like you and always be wagging your tail when you get home. And that, that's important. You have to have that support as an entrepreneur. A second bit of advice I'd give is think big, but also act small. I think often an entrepreneur you know, wants to do so much so fast, and that's a great part of your ambition, but focus on what are the things you can do right away to kind of get the flywheel going. And two other pieces of advice, you know, make sure the, you, know, you have almost unlimited potential 
if your product, your EdTech product delivers a return and, and helps that, that customer, that student advance toward their goal. I mean, they're basically entrusting their future into your product. And if you can help them advance towards their future to their goal, you, you really have unlimited potential. And the last bit of advice I'd give to any entrepreneur is you're going to have ups and downs, but don't stop believing as the journey song goes. And that, it's important just to be relentless and to, to keep moving. Thank you, Michael. Thank you so much. Thank you for uh, being so forthcoming and answering all our questions. And I'm quite sure our listeners uh, will listen to the entire podcast and take some thoughts from this conversation we have had. And uh, for all those listeners who would probably like to get in touch with Michael, they should email him at mm at gsv.com. Did I get that right? You gave my confidential email perfectly. No, okay, it's fine. All right. Okay. That's awesome. great. Love to hear from all. Thank you. Love to hear from all. Thanks, yeah. Neville. Thank you, Michael. And we wish you all the best in all your endeavors. And it was great having you on the show today. And thank you once more for everything. No, thank you. Thank you.